Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Press and Communications Officer, and today we're going to be taking a look at the importance of following the money made from the global illegal wildlife trade, a crime stream that's worth billions every year. Joining me is Julian Newman, our Campaigns Director, to talk about how it's possible to identify the financial flows linked to wildlife trafficking and how tackling money laundering can be a vital weapon in the fight against this criminal trade. Julian, welcome and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Perhaps we can start with getting an idea of the scale of the problem. Just how big is the international legal wildlife trade and what species are being trafficked? Well, of course, it's always hard to put an exact figure on what is, in essence, a, a crime. It's not really measured in official statistics. But we can say that you know, wildlife crime is one of the major forms of transnational organised crime. Uh, it's been growing rapidly. The most common used estimate puts the value of wildlife crime at somewhere between 7 and $23 billion a year. That's money being generated for criminal gangs. And what we can say for sure is that billions of dollars in money is being made from the slaughter of our wildlife. And it's truly a global crime. I mean, some people are aware of certain species in certain parts of the world. Maybe the focus is more on Africa, but really it's global. And uh, one of the first ever World Wildlife Crime Report produced in 2015 looked at all the seizures that have taken place over a long period of time and found that seizures, seizures of wildlife had occurred in 120 countries. There were 7,000 species that were seized, and also the, the traffickers came from 80 countries. So you can see it's a truly global problem. Wow. And, and can you tell us what money laundering in this context actually is and the part it plays in this trade? Essence, money laundering is the process used to clean up the proceeds of crime and to try and hide the origin, where the money came from, and try and make it appear as though it's legitimately been acquired. So it's the way that criminals take their ill-gotten gains and run it through the system, and it comes up nice and squeaky clean, and they can spend it on their luxury yachts, their cars, and their mansions. Okay, now, EIA's new report on money laundering is out this week, and it includes some fascinating case histories looking into the financial flows that are linked to ivory trafficking syndicates. Uh, what do we learn from exposés, such as the 2017 investigation into the Shuedong Group? The Shuedong Group was quite an interesting piece of work. We obviously had access to an active smuggling gang for over a year, and as our investigators built the confidence of this, this group of people from a town called Shuedong in China, they revealed quite a lot of details about how this trafficking of ivory was being organized. And some of the key things to do with the money is that um, there's two main flows, if you want, the finance. You have the flow going out from China to Africa, and that money is used to cover the expenses, the expenses of paying the poachers, uh, collecting the ivory, transporting the ivory, paying off bribes. So that money flow from Asia to Africa. Um, in the case of the Shredong guys, they use quite a complicated system, which is uh, underground money changers. These are sort of informal money brokers who are on the ground out there in Africa, often Chinese origin in this case. What happens is the, the smugglers and their investors, because often these syndicates take out, uh, taking money from investors, the money is paid into accounts in China, in Chinese currency, the renminbi, and it pops up in the hands of a underground money changer in somewhere like Dar es Salaam or Lagos, Nigeria, as uh, US dollars. That money is then used to pay the confidence, to pay the locals on the ground who do the collecting of the ivory and, and the packing and the transporting. The second major flow is, of course, where the profit's made. And in the case of the Shredong group, these profits are being made in China. These, this group specialized in trafficking raw ivory tusks. And if you look at the supply chain 
for ivory tasks, like most commodities, the, the value increases as you go up the supply chain. So what you what you pay a poacher in Africa, maybe $50, $80 a kilo for ivory, by the time it gets into the Chinese market, that tusk is worth over $700. So a huge markup there. What we found in the Shredon case is that the, the smugglers were, were quite content to use their own accounts, their own bank accounts and those of their family to take the money from the people who brought the ivory. And then they, they would spread it around the group, just hiding in plain sight, really. So nothing complicated was done in the China side. I guess they felt that they were home free. Wow. So, so I mean, is there supposed to be any kind of oversight of the, um, if you like, where this money's moving from their banks and their own accounts? Is there any routine kind of checks and balances or is it just um, a matter of trust? Well, all financial institutions and banks are supposed to follow the anti-money laundering laws of the country where they're from. And they're supposed to report any suspicious transactions to the to the relevant authorities. So if I went into a bank in the UK here and I took out my backpack, got loads of wads of euros and pounds out and said, can you can you just take this to me? They would be questions. I'd expect there'd be questions uh, and they should report any suspicions to the, to the relevant authority. So there are checks and balances there. The problem is, of course, there are so many transactions taking place all the time that it can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. So what is needed is really information and case studies to be provided to banks so they can spot these transactions because there's always a pattern to these transactions if you know where to look yeah now with, with techniques to tackle money laundering already used against other forms of organized crime like say the international drugs trade which is again is worth billions and billions uh, people might be surprised to learn that these techniques are still rarely used in the fight against wildlife crime i mean given the huge amounts of money involved why do you think this is the case well, until recently, so wildlife crime wasn't really seen as a serious form of crime in many countries. It's only recent years when there's been a huge surge in, in poaching and instability and all that entails that people have come to recognize, the global community has come to recognize that this is a major, major form of crime with severe consequences. So slowly it's rising up the agendas of uh, countries. But of course, there's lots of threats out there in the world. There's terrorism, there's, there's narcotics, there's human trafficking. All of these crimes are also fighting for the attention of the banks and the regulators. So finally, wildlife crime is getting up the agenda and getting more attention and more notice. And there's even been resolutions at the UN General Assembly calling on countries to do better at tracking the illegal proceeds from, from wildlife crime. You know, we've got a long way to go. The, the baseline is quite low. There was a survey done a few years ago um, that surveyed, I think, about uh, 45 countries. Out of those 45 countries, 86% said that they've been affected by wildlife crime. But in only 1% of wildlife crime cases in those countries, was there any financial investigation, charges or prosecution? Now, that was about five years ago. So uh, we've got a low base, but things are slowly, slowly improving. But there are still some obstacles and some barriers. For example, you know, the legal basis in some countries isn't strong enough uh, to, to define wildlife crime as a predicate crime. There's a real lack of financial investigators in some parts of the world. There's not enough trained financial investigators out there to, to do the job of pouring through the accounts and, and finding the clues. But we think we're moving in the right direction, but we've got quite a way to go still. Do, do you see any evidence yourself from you know, research for the recent report into uh, whether there's grounds to think the situation's improving at all? Well, I'm a natural optimist and it can't get any worse. Uh, we think, you know, yeah, we think there's, there's a the key opportunity to be had here if we can get more attention on the finances behind wildlife crime. You know, it's just the world, the global community is getting better at tracking and 
seizing contraband, like big ships of ivory, pangolin scales, that's that's all very well and good. It, it has a big effect. On, on, but really, if it's, there's no follow-up prosecution and you don't tackle the money, that's really just a business expense for the governments involved. But there have been some you know, positive developments uh, recently. For example, in 2018, uh, I think called the United for Wildlife Group uh, set up a thing called the Financial Action Task Force, Financial Task Force, and this brings together over 30 banks uh, who have committed to step up their efforts to combat illegal wildlife trade. And they receive alerts, um, what to look for. They receive details of certain cases. So that's encouraging to see that amount of interest from the banks. And I think that, that they are getting more aware of how wildlife crime works and what to look for. In terms of governments, there is a global organization called the Financial Action Task Force. This is the, the global standard setter for um, combating money laundering and this this system has, has really has teeth i mean if you if you don't adhere to the system you can face quite severe consequences you can even be isolated from the global financial system and about a year ago the chinese government assumed the presidency the one-year presidency of the fatf and encouragingly china for its presidency made illegal wildlife trade a priority issue um, so just a few days ago, um, the FATF released a report, a quite comprehensive report about the state of play regarding the legal wildlife trade and money laundering. It's a very well-produced document. There's quite a few case studies in there, and there's also um, you know, a list of measures that can be taken. So we hope that this report will also spur action at the government level. You touched on um, briefly um, the, the role of government agencies in enforcement doing things like seizures. Uh, sometimes a lot of these kind of um, seizures are faulted in that they're basically seen as using major wildlife pus for a one-off publicity opportunity. You know, they they display the contraband, they lay out all the tusks and the pangolin scales in bags they're found, they pose with it for the press, but then that seems to be the end of it a lot of the time. Do you think they should be doing a lot more, obviously, than just simply sending the message to the smugglers that, hey, we've caught your stuff, that there should be something beyond just a publicity opportunity? All too often, the, the good work that goes into a major seizure is squandered when there's no follow-up financial investigation or there's no follow-up prosecution. And from our experience, when you get a seizure, there's a treasure trove of information there in those documents. You know, somebody paid the shipping company. Somebody hired the truck to take the container to the port. And if you, if you get serious about financial investigations, you can start moving beyond what you might call the mules or the, or the people arranging the transport, and you can start identifying the people higher up because there will be money flows that, that are connected to that seizure. But unfortunately, all too often, you know, as you say, the, the contraband is taken out for the cameras, pictures taken of it, press conferences held, and it's put in storage, and that's the end of it. And as I said, that really just becomes a business expense for the, for the syndicate who will then go out and smuggle again to re recoup their loss. Um, so it's an, a missed opportunity, really. And one of the problems is that every country has a thing called a financial investigations unit, a financial intelligence unit, rather, FIU. It's the government body that's supposed to enforce the rules against money laundering. And they are have got potential to do some good work in the, in, the, in the illegal wildlife trade field. But in many cases, they're not really brought in on these cases. I mean, there are some countries where they have sort of multi-agency task forces whose job it is, is to combat wildlife crime. In some cases, the FIU is not even in that room. It's not in that group. So I guess sometimes it's an element that you know, the pieces are all there. They're just not joined up and pointing in the right direction. Yes, the system is there, really. Uh, 
we know what we have to do. We just have to start doing it more often. Uh, I think, you know, it happens as well. One of the things in the FATF report showed that the money flows aren't just limited to the countries where the species are sourced from or where the, where the wildlife, wildlife contraband is sold. You know, many countries are also involved because of the financial flows, and that includes transit countries. You know, I've seen many cases where shipments of ivory and, and pangolin scales have gone from Africa to Asia. They often go via transit countries uh, to try and confuse the route. Um, yet when they're, when they're seized in transit countries, the, the, the line is often that, well, it wasn't coming in our market, you know, it's passing on, it wasn't coming here, therefore, you know, it's not really our responsibility to do much about it. Yeah, so not our problem, Gov. It wasn't coming from us, it wasn't going to us. Just to turn to the trade-on story briefly, um, these, this group, they had a very clever method of smuggling their ivory. They uh, disguised three tons of ivory that they smuggled amongst plastic waste, plastic pellets, and that was because one of the syndicate members had a plastics business in China, so it would look like a legitimate trade. But also, they took a very convoluted route. You know, the container of the ivory left from Pemba in northern Mozambique. It went up to Mombasa in Kenya, and then went all the way across to Singapore, and then went right the way east to Port Busan in Korea, and then it backtracked into Hong Kong and across the border to China. You look at that route, it doesn't make sense. There's no reason for that container to have gone via Busan until we found out that the group was using a freight forwarder there in Busan Port, who was an expert in trafficking wildlife. He had a different pricing structure for different types of wildlife. He'd charge you $45 a kilo for pangolin scales and $145 a kilo for ivory. He would change the paperwork around, reissue bills of lading to confuse the trail. He would even repack it into a different container, all to make sure that when that shipment arrived in Hong Kong, it would look like it was just a legitimate shipment of plastic pellets that come from Korea, being imported by a plastics pellet company. Basically offering a full service package then really, almost a one-stop shop for getting your stuff in there unnoticed. Yeah, and so when you when you find out these things, that route suddenly starts making sense. It doesn't make economic sense, but it makes criminal sense. And I guess, would it be right to assume that places like Busan wouldn't necessarily be looking for um, those kind of contraband products because they're not on a sensible shipping route? Um, would that be part of the reason they'd be using that? Most of the reasons was because they've got this guy in the port, you know, a guy who they, they work with and trust and knows how to do it, really. I mean, I think that it's often overlooked in, when we look at wildlife crime, the key role played by freight forwarders and customs agents because they know how shipping works, they know how customs procedures work, and they know what you can do to sort of confuse and obfuscate the origin of the contraband and get it through to its final market. What kind of responsibility do you think the private bank, sector banks carry for um, allowing the profits of wildlife crime to pass through their hands? Is it a case that they're turning a blind eye or is it more that they're just unaware of the problem? Well, the case studies the EIA has developed, we've done several case studies now of actual incidents of uh, wildlife shipments being undertaken and seized. And we've tried to look at how the money flowed in, in, in those cases. So we've done quite a few of those now and focused mostly on ivory and also pangolin scales. And one common theme is the widespread use of the formal banking system, the normal banking system. These guys aren't doing anything particularly clever. They're not using Bitcoin. They're not using cryptocurrencies. You know, they're basically hiding in plain sight um, through use of the formal financial system. And just to give you one example, we did an analysis of a case in Tanzania from a few years ago. It was quite a major case at the time when a, you know, a residential house in Dar es Salaam was raided and they found 1.9 tons of ivory being packed at this, at this house. And when they looked at documents in the house, they found that there were two companies registered the address. 
Uh, one was uh, the the owner was a Chinese national, and the co-owner was the security guard for the house, which should have been quite suspicious. But these com- these companies were sort of ostensibly trading in foodstuffs and marine products, but they were really just front companies. Front companies set up to mask the ivory trading and to make it look that they were doing legitimate business. And when you looked at the transactions, these companies had bank accounts in Tanzania, both in US dollars and Tanzanian shillings. And they were doing transfers and transactions with uh, quite a series of dodgy looking companies in Hong Kong and several companies on the Chinese mainland. So this is an example where front companies were used to hide the ivory trafficking and the money was flowing through the system, through the formal banking system. And in a single day, half a million dollars was paid into those accounts in Tanzania, yet it didn't raise a red flag or a suspicious transaction report with the banks concerned. So there's more the banks can do. I think there's more willingness now. Um, We've already talked about the United for Wildlife uh, Financial Task Force, which is doing some good work, and that's uh, that's expanding. So some banks are really stepping up to the plate and showing concern in this. Of course, one problem, one hindrance is the lack of information. There's very few cases out there uh, where there's been a proper financial investigation and prosecution of wildlife criminals. So there's a lack of specifics. And as I said, the United for Wildlife Task Force provides alerts, which will help the banks to to define patterns. And what EIA has been doing for the last few years is we've been doing a series of uh, presentations to banks where we present our case studies uh, in a bit to try and help them to know what to look for. Because when when you look at, say, ivory trafficking from East Africa, there's only a certain number of types of material used to hide the ivory. Things like you know, we have plastic waste, you have timber, you have um, seashells, marine products, you have agricultural products. So if you see a company that's based out there, which might be owned by nationals from a high-risk jurisdiction in terms of wildlife trade, and lots of money are flowing through those accounts, and that should raise raise your concerns. So the information gap is slowly being filled, and EA is doing our bit to try and fill it. But you know, there's more more information is needed to help the banks to target those kinds of suspicious transactions because, of course, you know, on a day, daily basis, there are, I can't begin to guess how many transactions are around the world. You need to know what you're looking for, and I think you know that's the key thing that the banks can can step up on and, and do training for their staff, the compliance officers, to so they can spot these these trails. What sort of um, response have you found when you've been chatting to banks about this? I mean, is it news to them? Are they kind of shocked and horrified? Or is it kind of, oh, yeah, we do need to do do a bit more? Generally, there's a, there's a real willingness amongst the bigger banks, the international banks, to to be more active in this field and, and, and step up to the plate and, and do what they can to to identify these payments and, and make sure that they're not giving banking facilities to to wildlife criminals. You know, they have things to do, like a Know Your Customer um, due diligence they have to do on new new people coming to join the bank and so we try and help them to know what to look for really so i think there's there's real improvements happening there of course then you get some smaller banks at sort of maybe national or regional level that that aren't um, quite as engaged and that's where we perhaps need to focus on a bit more but um i think you know it's moving the right way should we say Finally, if, if you had like a, a magic wand to wave, what would you want to see done to realistically tackle money laundering and environmental crime? Like starting from now, go. It's like, yeah, what would what what could be done to really make a difference? Well, I think the report that came out by the Financial Action Task Force could really be a big boost for action against wildlife crime through money laundering investigations by governments. 
know, it's uh, the financial task force has uh, <clears throat> has real powers and it carries out a series of evaluations of countries of their systems to combat money laundering and this includes a national risk assessment and hopefully that countries will start thinking about their risk in terms of exposure to wildlife crime start putting in measures to curb it and start training and employing financial investigators who can really get to grips with this and not as an afterthought but at the beginning of any investigation involve the financial experts, get them on the ground, get them looking through the paperwork, work with the prosecutors, start laying anti-money laundering charges against the people involved, and then get the judiciary to to do the right thing when these cases come to court. So the system is getting better, the system is is improving. All we need now is to to get these cases done and, and to get people behind bars and to and to seize their assets because you know the, most of the guys at the higher echelons of these wildlife syndicates they're doing it purely out of economics you know, they just they just want to get rich and if we start going after their money we can identify who the bosses are we can start seizing their houses seizing their sports cars and put them behind bars so i think you know, the opportunities are there if we want to grab them excellent well, amen to that uh, well julian thanks very much indeed for joining us today um, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us today and wherever you are, stay safe out there. <laughs>